Bruce Buckley, how are you doing? It's really cool to see you. I was trying to think if we have met before. Maybe at a cigarette. When, when did you, when were you at ILM? I was at ILM from 92 to 99. I was there 93 to 95 when, and just there, just when Disney was offering big fat, fat paychecks to anyone who worked at ILM. <laughs> <laughs> well, right on. So we definitely had some overlap then. Yeah, I was on Casper. The biggest yeah, show you're... was on Casper. Yeah, that's when everything kind of blew up for sure. Yeah. Like that's when the place went crazy and more than doubled, I think, in size. That was great. Yeah, yeah your name is definitely familiar. So now this is great, though. I love it when I get a chance to talk to people that I don't know very well, because it's really interesting to hear everybody's story. So I'm going to start way back and ask you, where are you from originally? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Toronto. Well, actually, a city called Hamilton, which is just about 35 miles south and west of uh, Toronto mm-hmm. on, on, uh, on the Great Lake, on Great uh, Lake Ontario. Uh, yeah, so, and... Uh, and were yeah. you, as a kid, like, so growing up in Toronto, like, were your... Did you have uh, brothers and sisters? Yeah, yeah, I, got, I have an older brother and uh, a younger brother and a younger sister. Oh, yeah, so we're right in the middle. Now, are you? What did your folks do? My dad, my my mom was uh, uh, she worked part time every now and then, but mostly she was a uh, you know a stay at home mom. And mm-hmm. my dad was a was a, he was a he worked at international harvester. He was a molder, a mold maker. Really interesting. Yeah, so, yeah, so he so you know mostly uh, you know uh, uh, tractor engines. So making molds for things that would be part of tractor engines. Yeah. Or just the old, the whole engine, the cast iron engine block. Oh, wow. Wow. That's so interesting. So was he, was he an engineer? No, he was just a, you know, he was a, an army vet from World War II and all the big factories were hiring army vets and they, they would just train them. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. How interesting. Now, as a kid growing up, like, were you guys, um, were you, as a family, did you guys go to the movies and stuff like that? Was that a big thing for you? It was at the beginning. We'd always go to uh, 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 drive-ins. Never went mm-hmm. to an actual theater until I was in my teens, you know, <laughs> with going with friends. But all that, we'd just go to, my dad would always make sure there was a, a double or triple bill on. Yeah, yeah. So, so about halfway through the second movie, we'd be always sleeping in the back. <laughs> so maybe that's when him, him and my mom would make out in the front seat. Oh, well, right on. Yeah. That's, that's always the, uh, probably the one great, uh, you know, benefit of the drive in that and uh, the classic thing of, you know, piling all your friends in the trunk, right. right. So they get in for free. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that big, terrible uh, speaker that would go right in <laughs> Hook onto oh the yeah, window. on the window. Sure, yeah. It you sounded this big, and it sounded great. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so you're growing up in Toronto, and are you like, what are you into as a kid? Are you like a creative kid? Are you did you play sports or? Uh, well, I I was mostly creative. My my brother and myself, we always drew, mm-hmm. and you know, and would always. 
actually, I, I really like making things. Like I had a plasticine. So, you know, do a character out of plasticine, destroy it, do another one. Cool. Yeah. I, I think that prepped me for film work. Really? Yeah. So like playing and making stuff as a kid, like got you kind of interested in like creating characters, creating worlds, creating. Right. And, and also the fact is you'd work on something and you have to throw it away because it wasn't needed anymore in the film. Yeah, so, no, that's so interesting, right? The kind of very temporal nature of, of working in film. Yeah. Like everything is temporary. Right. It's until the show's delivered. So when you, so you're, so you're like drawing with your brother and you're like making some stuff as a kid, are you going and going to drive-ins and stuff like in like, like high school and stuff? Are you, do you, do, do you take any like art classes or things yes, like that? Yeah, it was, art was mandatory in, in high school, in grade school. So and I, well, after grade 10, it wasn't mandatory, but I still took them as, as elective classes. Yeah, because that was something that you were into. Right. And then, yeah. uh, and then, you know, the, and then I, uh, you know, then I went to college, and, you know, for a year when my college year was just doing fund, art fundamentals at Sheridan. Oh, really? So you went to Sheridan for like, what was there a plan of study that you were going to pursue? It was. I didn't really know what I was going to study, so I, I went to Sheridan. I took their art fundamentals course. Mm-hmm. So, and then I really. What discovered... kinds of things did you do in the fundamentals? Was it like, you know, figure drawing and like you know doing figure sculpture drawing, and sculpture, pottery, illustration, mm-hmm. uh, both technical and creative. You know, non uh, and creative illustration, uh, photography, film. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I really gravitated towards photography. And of course, my, my dad said, yeah, you have to graduate. You have to gravitate to one of the most expensive things. <laughs> because, you know, we all we had to have a, a 35 mil camera, yeah. which I already owned. But I also had to have a four by five. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because it was because there's a lot of studio work. And so and back in, in, in those days, the four by five was the workhorse for most. Yeah, photographers. sure. And did, so did, what, what kind of camera did you get? Uh, well, they, they had us all get the same camera. So it was a, an Arca Swiss mm-hmm. camera with a, uh, a Schneider 210 lens and with a Compor shutter, uh, F, uh, F8. Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. And are, did you, uh, was that something that like having that equipment and working in that way in school, like that's something that you got really into? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I I loved it. It was just especially when you when you start, you know, renting the or signing out the ninety mil or the sixty five mil wide angle lens. And were you, what kind of subject matter were you? Was it all kinds of stuff like landscapes, people, portraits? Like, or was it anything in particular that you were photographing? It was the course was focused on uh, commercial photography. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it was like studio work products you know tabletop stuff uh then we did a couple cars uh portraiture uh, fashion so a lot of like lighting stuff too then right oh yeah and we then we did some uh architectural a lot of oh, architectural. Cool. so that would be that would be probably the, the the that was probably ended up being one of the more difficult things to do because you had to wait for the right light mm-hmm. while you're trying to do all your other classes 
Yeah. So getting out there like at, you know, either early morning or late afternoon and capturing right. it at just the right moment to get the kind of detail and shadow. Right. And mm-hmm. it's pretty cool though. I mean, I feel like there's something so interesting about, you know, any kind of lens based media, you know, mm-hmm. working in that way where you're really getting, and especially now, I mean, it's so interesting to think about, you know, back in the time when maybe you and I were in school and the the opportunities, it was all analog and then mm-hmm. now, you know, the kinds of things you can do digitally, it's the, there's something about that analog age and working in a way where you have to be so patient to even sort of see the result of right. your endeavor. And also, and I've noticed that I bought my first digital camera, professional camera, DSLR, in 2008. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, like 90% of my photographs are complete rubbish <laughs> because I'll just, <laughs> I just photograph everything. And when you're shooting yeah. in analog and film, you had to think about everything because if you had to buy the film, you had to get it processed, you had to get it printed, you know, just even, even if you just got a contact sheet. Sure. And then you have to study through them and then, and then go and get the ones printed you wanted for your ship. If you're doing a show or, or if you're doing yeah. someone. So you, so you had to really think about everything you shot you did. Now you just well, it's interesting, you know, it's like the 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 sort of you know, this scarcity of uh materials and of uh potential exposures, you know, like mm-hmm. you're limited to however many you have in the mm-hmm. sort of pre-digital age. Right. And now the sort of you know, ability to go out and shoot really anything, everything, multiple, you know images on a single, you know, memory card or whatever, to have the ability to have that kind of carefree ability to shoot. Yeah. It it makes you less considered, but I suppose too, like, I I think I've heard a couple people talk about uh, in, in schools where they talk about how, you know, moving from an analog, you know, film camera, like shooting, you know, motion picture film where you're limited to the size of your magazine and you're you're real, uh, creating like false scarcity in the digital, mm-hmm. right? Where right. you say, you know, you can only shoot for X amount of time, and then you have to stop, you know, to prevent that kind of thing from happening. So right. creating this false uh, narrative, but it it's there's something really important about that. I think about having the time to be able to consider what you're doing, right? Yeah, because yeah, one of my neighbors is a is a film director. Uh, uh, and he went back to film because he of the fact that he needed to constrain himself to focus on the story and not focus on having you know having eight camera setups to shoot it's the so, same it's thing. So that's so interesting. Yeah, it's like it's it's weird. Like I wonder if that's something that you know someone growing up today coming to shoot would they feel that same. Uh, need for constraint, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. the, is it something that's sort of innate in the, the way of thinking like that comes from the past? So right. are you in, do you, do you go through the entire four, three or four years of the program at the art school? Yeah, I did. Well, I did four years. The first four years, it, it was an associate's degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because uh, they were at the time, Sheridan wasn't offering a master's or, or an undergrad bachelor's. They were just a community, basically a community college. Yeah. Uh, but 
And then, uh, yeah, so I, I did the, the first year of the art fundamentals and the other three years. There's only a two-year course, but I did the third year for experimental photography. And did it, you have to, as at the end of the program, did you have a show? Yeah, everyone had a show. And the teachers would just go through and start, well, they, would, they could be kind of, these were the days before uh, yeah, the Montessori gold star happened where they, <laughs> where you you really you really couldn't um say anything too derogatory about somebody's work sure sure now then you know somebody i remember one teacher looking at uh, somebody's work and said this looks because he was retouching he said this looks like it was a monkey in the bottom of a monkey's cage and it has shiz all over it <laughs> you couldn't get uh, as a teacher you know you wouldn't be able to say that today well, you know, that's so funny that you say that. I do think that there is, you know, I, I've been teaching for the last, I hate to say this, but 16 years now wow. I've been teaching. And um, I teach a lot of digital, uh, mostly digital stuff, some visual effects stuff and some filmmaking. But um, one of the things that we have a hard time with with students today is critique critique is the most challenging and difficult thing to get students to engage in. There's right. a kind of, uh, I think in the way that you're describing, there's kind of this fear of being too critical of someone else's work for fear that they'll be critical of your own. But we always talk about it in the way that I think it it's so valuable. And when you think back to, you know, dailies at ILM, you know, sitting in dailies and, you know, rolling something forward and backward and really looking at it and trying to decide, is this working? Does this look right? What's, what's missing here? What's wrong with, you know, that corner of the image or what's going on there? That ability to be, the more critical you can be, I think the more you learn more from your negative reviews than you do from your positive ones, you know? Well, because that makes you work harder. Yeah, you don't want to have that negative. You don't want to have that negative review in your next showing. Well, and also too, I think sometimes even if you don't agree with you know someone's negative critique, it's interesting to see the things that you generate have trigger that kind of response in right. people. You know that it might lead people to have there's something about it doesn't sit right with them, and that's kind of interesting to think about. Mm-hmm. So, so you have your, your, was there a theme to your final show? It was actually all, it was all, um, it was all based on, uh, it was landscapes, but at the time it was when we had the, remember the acid rains? Oh, sure. Right. And you're killing trees. So my whole thing was, was just all 20 pieces were just on uh, the effects of acid rain on trees and plants and lakes. Cool. So kind of like an environmentalist kind of uh, yeah. activist bend right. to your show. That's cool. And it was, the show was called After the Rain. Nice. It wasn't a hat. It, I, I tried to make it as depressing as possible because you had that college level angst. <laughs> and <laughs> Of course, you got to have that. That's important. So what year was this around? 79. Oh, yeah. So that's perfect angst time too. Like right, right when we're entering the the age of um, cynicism. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, so puberty is pretty well gone. It's, it's pretty well on the way out by that time, the puberty growth. <laughs> and all you have left is just the anger from your puberty. <laughs> so where do you go after, after you finish up at Sheridan? What, what do you do? Do you wind up going to work right away or? I, 
I did a bit. I did some traveling, of course. Mm-hmm. But then uh, I took a job with the Canadian government, uh, running a microfilm lab. And so, what 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 is that like? Microfilm, like 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 records management. Oh, okay. So like, so, so mi- you know, like microfiche, that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so when you go to the library and, you, and you're cranking through looking up old newspapers or sure for us it's just government documents um but no i i did that uh for about eight nine years nine years and mm-hmm. during that time because we were because we were visually oriented you know with what we we're doing computer companies were starting to just give us free free equipment so i remember uh, we got yeah. we got a bosch fgs system to play with for six months. Oh wow! So I sat down. I played with it. So I did stay after work and just play with it. And then, and uh, GE gave us a one of their uh, uh, their Genographics. I don't know mm-hmm. if you remember Genographics from General Electric when everyone was getting into 3D stuff and AT and T and all that. So and that's where I got my interest. So from there, I just I I left there and I went to. Uh, Seneca College to study technical illustration because I I didn't go I, I went to at Sh- at the time Sheridan didn't you they wanted you to have a uh, a background in in programming uh, okay sure and the few times a few courses I did in programming I went I don't like this <laughs> <laughs> well that's interesting I, though so wait but so when you're working at the for the government and you're doing this sort of microfilm work and they're giving you these computers, these different companies, and you kind of are playing around with them. What was the, I mean, other than like, it's this new thing, like, was there a particular like interest that like it, it sort of brought out in you? Like, or was it just like, Hey, I just want to see what this thing can do. No, it actually brought out a really good interest because I wanted to, because at the time nobody thought a computer could do art. Mm-hmm. And all I wanted to do was see how much art I could do on the computer. Really? So inst- so right away at the very beginning, you're thinking about image making. Right. And doing oh, art. That's cool. And uh, I think it was right, it's around the time I, I went to, uh, in 87, it was 87, I went to the NAB. Mm-hmm. And I saw this, this surly guy with big pork chop uh, sideburns and a brush cut sitting uh, using it. The first version of Alias software. Oh, really? And that was wow, eighty-seven. Uh, really, wow. That was Spaz Williams. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. So Spaz was the one who um, introduced me to that. So he was working for Side Effects Productions, mm-hmm. which the, you know that was Greg Hermanovic and Kim Davidson, and they were they were also writing Prisons, which was based on the old, old Omnibus software. So Steve got me in there, and he and he started showing me. Alias. I went, oh, this is really cool. And then, but of course, Greg and Kim wanted me to look at, um, you know, prisms, which was, you know, the 3D modeler was like just typing in, you know, Cartesian coordinates. Sure, sure. And running routines to do surfacing. So, but, so you get exposed to Alias at NAB, and is that something that, like, you know, you, you leave NAB, you go back home and back to work, I assume. Right. And like, is there a moment where opportunity comes up to start working in some kind of graphics oriented? Yeah. Well, what ended up happening was I, I was working 
uh, you know, just going in and when they when they could uh, at Side Effects Productions and just started you know teaching myself more and more about Alias and 3D modeling and and then just and I would always be calling the support guys at Alias <laughs> <laughs> and bothering them and then I think back in I think uh, September '91. I was doing some freelance graphics work, you know, just slideshows. And uh, Gary Mundell from uh, Alias called me up and said, do you want to come in for an interview? I went, sure. So they hired me to be one of the support people. Oh, wow. Cool. So after about two or three months of, uh, of uh, you know, getting my feet wet at, at Alias, I started training and teaching. So, so the, so the time you spent like kind of learning it on your own and calling them to like help you solve problems and stuff, you're sort of in an autodidactic way, you're taking all this on, you're learning all these things kind of at the very sort of beginning stages. Mm -hmm. And they eventually come to a point where they're like, Hey, we should hire this guy. Because actually I knew, I started to end up knowing more about the software than most of the people in the support group. When you were teaching yourself, were you doing like actual work on projects that were being used in a commercial way in it at all? Or was it all just kind of stuff where it was hobby like learning? I I started to take on some commercial work mm-hmm. just to push myself, to yeah. challenge myself, to, to give myself a real deadline. A real and, deadline and a really specific, I mean, the thing I think that's great about commercial work that's different from you know, fine art or working on you and your own stuff is that you're really put into a place where you're given very specific tasks that need to be accomplished. It's not, right. you know, and, and a, and a set time frame too, where it's right. like, well, we need this. So can you do this? And well, can you make it look a little more this way as opposed to that? And so, you know, it really pushes you to solve specific problems. I think it's because of my uh, commercial photography training and background that is what, what drove me because you, you already knew that when, when a client comes an art director or a client comes and we need a photograph of this, mm-hmm. that's what they want. Yeah. Right. You want, you want these colors to, to match. And so I'm doing all color accurate stuff, which in, in the film world, it was, it, it still seems now more hit than this. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. So, Especially. so you wind up you wind up at alias and you're working doing eventually doing training so you're actually mm-hmm. are you, you have they have clients who are coming in and they're acquiring software licenses i guess and then you're training people how to use the tools yes both uh, both in the office and on site so mm-hmm. some places uh, like when, when i did work for ford or i did work for nbc or i went down to to Bogota, Columbia. And Chile, or or Seoul, Korea. You, oh, right. Like Samsung, wow. Samsung, you have to go right, right in because they're because they have so much intellectual property. Sure. That they're working with, that they don't want anyone, especially when you're working with a car company. Yeah. Like Ford, Ford was like walking into a, a Fort Knox. <laughs> Top secret, yeah, non-disclosure can, agreements, and all no that cameras stuff. whatsoever because you're walking into the room where they they do all the evaluation of, of reflections on cars. Well, well, so so you're doing this work and you're getting an opportunity to travel a lot, yeah. it sounds like. Yeah. Was that something that you had done much of prior? 
Uh, just vacation. Yeah. Yeah. That must have been kind of fun, I would think, to get to go to these interesting places and see these other other cities, other countries. Oh yeah. It's especially when you go to a you know, go going to Korea, which was probably my first country where, you know, it, it's English really was not the I mean, I went to Colombia and and, and before after that. It was mm-hmm. the first where English was not the language spoken. Yeah. Even when you even when you go over to Europe, you know a lot a lot of people speak pretty well or two or three languages in Europe. Well, and the letter forms the same. You know, it's like when you go to Asia. I think you know it's like it's as close, at least as a, a Western, mm-hmm. a Westerner. I, I always feel like you know I spent a lot of time uh, on a project in Japan, and I remember thinking it was the closest I'd ever come to going to another planet. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. Korea was like that. But, that's know, cool I, so so you're working and you're traveling around you're doing training for clients and stuff and hmm. like uh are you how long are you at alias for i left in may 1993 so i was there almost three four years mm-hmm. and uh, a, a company uh, that i did work for a training work in waterford connecticut sonalis uh they were they they were they, they were sonar analysts, so they were they were, they developed sonars for uh, Trident class submarines. Oh, wow. but they had this, but they were branching out to doing more uh, commercial work for you mm-hmm. know for visuals. So I went there to help. So with my clients working for them were was ESPN and Nesson, the New England Sports Network, out of Boston. Right, and, sure. And we did a lot, of, right? We did a lot of work for the uh, the uh, the Foxwoods, the the gaming casino. Oh yeah, just on the border between uh, Rhode Island and Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Made a lot of money with that. And then uh, that was. Would you me. say that you, by this point you must have been having been the trainer and stuff too? Like you must have been like kind of a master of the early tool set. Like you must have known it inside and out. Yeah. I hope I did. Uh, yeah, I think so. Because I know when, uh, back in December of 1990, uh, no, November of 1993, uh, John Burton calls me and says, do I want and said, you want to come in and work at a, because he, he was not, he was no longer a CG super, or a visual effects supervisor. He was just basically, he was you know, the head of the department manager mm-hmm. at IOM at the time. And so I sent them my reel. I get a call, and they said, "Yeah, we're going to put an offer. We're going to we're going to FedEx. We're going to FedEx. We're going to courier you a an offer letter to start." So, and this was nineteen ninety three, right? Yeah, and so, yeah. I, 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 the funniest thing they didn't tell me when I got when I'd show up at the Kerner Building. Uh-huh. There was no ILM anywhere. Yeah, yeah. So I'm walking, I, I was, I'm 40, I got there and I'm walking around the buildings, you know, trying to figure out well, where's ILM. All I see yeah. is Turner Optical. <laughs> and so a security guard comes up and said, so uh, can I help you? I said, yeah, I'm looking for a company called Industrial Light and Magic. All I see is Colonel Optical. And he said, oh, you're here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. The, uh, the, uh, hidden secret base yeah right so you came so you came for an interview and did you interview with john then yeah 
No, it's actually everything was over the phone. Oh, okay. So you'd gotten hired. Right. Oh, on a phone interview. Oh, wow. Okay. And then I, and because you know, they were, because I think um, ILM was really desperate to find artists because they're, you know, they're, they had, they had the Flintstones in progress. They had uh, the mask in mm-hmm. progress. They just finished Jurassic Park. Yep. And the success for there. And so they, they had Casper. Now I'm curious, like, so, so you get this opportunity to go to ILM. You had been working at Alias. You had been uh, previously doing work, like doing some commercial work. And what do your, what does your family think of like, you know, Bruce's crazy career? Are people, are they thinking this is really cool? Are they really supportive? And uh, at first they didn't know what the heck I was doing, especially when I quit the government. You know, I quit a really cush job with really good benefits, mm-hmm. you know, a good retirement plan. Yeah. Right. So, you know, <laughs> so, you, know, so you, you quit all that and they go, what the heck is he doing? Then, by, But it's by like the, as a kid, it's got to be too, like, you're like, yeah, but I mean, a good stable job. It's like, I still got things I want to do. Right. Right. And so then when I, uh, uh, yeah, but I think it was about 90s. Almost 92, 93, when they, they, we had an open house at Alias. So all our families could come in to see what we did. Ah. So they came in and they just went, oh, this is fascinating. That's cool. So they could, they could connect the dots and see like, oh, this is right. like, this is a new emerging field of, right. you know, yeah, that's really cool. And plus I was making, you know, and they were offering really good money. So sure. making very good money. Yeah. So. So, all right. So you, so you come to ILM and they're working on these shows. Are you, what do they do with you when you get there? Do they, do they stick you in any kind of training? Do they put you to work right away on a show or? Put me to work on a show. Day one, you had my orientation mm-hmm. in the morning at the, after lunch sat at the desk and got my first um, sheets model model sheets to start creating and that was for casper yeah so we're it's funny thing is uh i'm glad i have a i had a background in technical illustration and drafting because we had to build a lot of the stuff we were building in cg mm-hmm. was to match the live action set and so all we had was a plan so so you're able to use those and then start to generate geometry and build right. all the assets. Right. Yeah. And... Right. Yeah. You just needed a, you know, just needed a, a pair of calipers and a ruler. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, when you can, now, had you spent any time in California before? No. Well, just visiting, you know, like yeah. a vacation, you know, my ex-wife and myself, we, we, my, we had a, she had a cousin living in, um, in uh, San Juan, or not San Juan, uh, Carpinteria. And oh, so sure. We, yeah, so we went We went to visit her, then we went up into the city, hung out in the city, then went to Yosemite. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> but that was like two weeks, and then went back, and then and uh, and she came with me to uh, Connecticut, and within two weeks, she hated Connecticut. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, what can you do? Uh, right. 
not for everyone, I guess. So now no. you're you're working at Ca- on at ILM. You're working on Casper. And when you started on Casper, were there already a lot of people on the show, or was it really at the beginning of the show? It was pretty well the beginning. Well, because it, there were more modelers than there were anyone else at that time. Because you know you, you have to create the assets so any sure. people can do everything else they need to them. Uh, but no, there was where I was in a room. There was Kyle Odermatt, mm-hmm. Wade Howie, Matt Hendershot, myself, and Dave Carson. Oh, right on. And Dave Carson is a visual effects suit, but he wanted to learn CG modeling. So, so he and, was in the in the in the groove with the rest of the gang there. Right, and yeah, and it was maybe where the days we were getting we were getting a really really bad initial. 3D scans. Mm-hmm. And then you'd have to project nerves curves on these high density scans and just start lofting through them. Yeah, that was something that should have taken maybe three days to do now to recapologize. Probably took about three to four weeks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, everything in it, oddly, it's so much of it's still so manual, you know, mm-hmm. at that time. So you're, are, and are most of the things that you're building, you said you were building some architectural kind of set-based environment stuff. And then were you doing characters too? I did, I worked, I did a lot of work on Fatso. Mm-hmm. And then I went back to, because it, no one else wanted to do the hard surface stuff. And I said, I, so I said, okay, I'll do it. And I just ripped through it. So it was really fast. Yeah, yeah. So all the all the sets and props, I just went through them in, you know, in, in a few months. And there was now a that lot sh- of them. that show, if I remember, it was kind of really one of the first, not the first, but one of the first big, like you know, lip sync character mm-hmm. kind of character heavy shows, right. right? Where it's like these all the ghost characters and stuff who are really driving a huge part of the narrative are. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you like coming into work with this group and sort of seeing working in this kind of, you know, uh, sort of building the airplane while it's flying kind of way, mm-hmm. are you, is the learning curve really like steep or do you feel like it's, you're kind of in the, cause you must've been learning a lot of stuff at the same time as you were sort of putting to, to use skills that you already had. Right. Well, I, what I liked about those days is, well, basically we had no what they call pipeline mm-hmm. like we have today. So you know when you your your file met, so your 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 ability to uh, uh, pass a file off is just saying here's the latest Maya file. <laughs> <laughs> so you sure. had no version. So there was no real versioning or or, um, or or logging in anything. There's no shotgun. Yeah. Yeah. Or any other system of paste, but a lot of the things we did is always making it up. So, so a bunch of us who are in a modeling group, like Jeff Campbell, Paul Hunt, myself, Stuart mm-hmm. Liu. When we found something that started working, we'd say, "Hey, come check this out." And there's there's actually a lot of sharing. Yeah, new techniques, right? Because that's really cool. I mean, that's such an important part of I think certainly those early days of development of a lot of new 
techniques, new tools, new, new ideas, shortcuts, you know, mm-hmm. strategies. I think that bred an enormous amount of camaraderie too. Like it made yeah. working in that way really fun where it's like you, a lot of times people talk about, you know, just working, you know, at the computer sitting at your desk. And there is that part of it where it seems a little more sedentary than kind of the old world of optical visual effects. But I think in those early days, you know, that digital work too was very, um, yeah, there was so much kind of engagement across across disciplines, but also, yeah, sharing, the sharing yeah. of information that, you know, it elevated everybody's game and made it able, you were able to do more uh, right. by kind of sharing the knowledge. Right. And, you know, there's, and because and, later on, when I went to work in a couple other studios, some people were, didn't like to play nice in the same sandbox as other artists. Yeah, I've noticed that too. And I think that's a, I wonder if that's a, just a culture difference between something about that culture for the most part. I think that culture at ILM was one of, of openness of like Mm -hmm. wanting, there was not a lot of, um, you know, trying to protect one's turf that like, that's my area of expertise. You know, it was like everybody would kind of share what they knew. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's in some ways that's about it's now studios are starting to get back to that, but yeah, some studios were just like I think it was a, um, I did a bit of work for NPC, and that was <laughs> I ran into a couple issues where people did not want to share. I went, okay, I I will just share a brief personal story. I've worked at many companies uh, over the years as well, and I wish I didn't say, have to say this, I guess I don't have to say it, but I wish I didn't feel this way, but I worked at MPC on a project when they opened their first uh, studio in Vancouver Mm -hmm. uh, back in 2008, I think it might've been. And uh, it was hands down the worst experience I've ever had. It was that same kind of thing where it was a lot of, um, they had a different model and their model was competition. Mm-hmm. I think, and competition can be great too, but it was oftentimes, uh, it, w- it didn't feel like you were part of a team. No. <laughs> well, you weren't meant to feel like part of a team if you're competing with all your other workmates. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's not a, for, at least for me, that wasn't a great work environment. It wasn't a great experience. No, it's, it's never as when you, when you can't, when you feel like there's, uh, there's going to be a knife in your back. Yeah. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. Who yeah. knows what? Yeah. Or you're going to get fired any minute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not a great incentive to like, you know, it just makes you think like, oh, when can I get out of here? I'm going to find yeah. another opportunity somewhere else. So and you're, so you're, so, oh, you're yeah. at ILM, you're working on Casper and that show goes on for well over a year, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah I, 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 I finished up in November and then I went to work on some commercials. Mm-hmm. Because they didn't have work for me, and then uh, after that, I they uh, put me on Dragonheart. Ah, uh, yes. So I I was the uh, I built the I was my I was tasked with because there were four of us building the, the Draco because it was just too much for one person. Yeah. When the show started, so I I did uh, the whole back end. So <laughs> the I was, back end. I was, yeah, I was kind of like <laughs> the, the the ass man 
<laughs> the business end of Draco. Yeah. Yes. Very good. Mm-hmm. So now you're, so Dragonheart, that was kind of a, an interesting, uh, again, another project that when I think back on those sort of the succession of projects at that time, Casper, you know, was a really big character driven show with lip sync animation, but it's mm-hmm. a stylized aesthetic. It's a particular kind of look. Right. And then Dragonheart, if memory serves, was one of the first, it was sort of taking that kind of Jurassic Park-ish kind of photorealism, but also bringing a performative element to it at the same time and creating a a talking dragon in that capacity. So another pretty innovative show with a lot of problems that had to be solved and addressed. Working on the back end, (laughs) (laughs) did you have any interesting... uh, issues that were presented to you that you were able to kind of help uh, bring to, to the fore? Uh, you know, just, well, I think we had, we knew what we had to do. I think the biggest issue was um, since we had no concept of displacement maps. So all the scales had to be modeled in. I just, yeah, I think it ended up being like 3 million uh, vertices for the wow. whole character. Yeah. And, plus, yeah. and plus his wings had the, be, you know, first time he actually, you know, did uh, that kind of uh, fl- wings that would fold up and mm-hmm. unfold. And I think Patrick Neary was the rigger that I think he almost died doing it. <laughs> yeah, just the complexity of a collapsing and expanding structure like that. Yeah, so, because you, because you know, the uh, you know, because be easy to sh- very fast to share the CDs. So, mm-hmm. and then you get, and then RenderMan, if you shared CDs, RenderMan would just die. Yeah. Yeah. If things were in self-intersecting or crossing over. Yeah. RenderMan yeah. So, share. so, uh, I, you know, it makes me think though, I, I didn't ask this now, all this time that you're at Alias and you're traveling, you mentioned going to NAB. Had you gone to any C-graphs during that time too? Uh, when, when I was at Alias, I was never chosen to go to SIGGRAPH. Mm. I was always chosen to go to NAB. So my first SIGGRAPH wasn't until I started at Disney in 95. Oh, really? Not yeah. even when you were at ILM? No, no, because you, you had to be part of the chosen few. Oh, yeah, in order for them to pay for you to go. <laughs> right. Oh, I could have paid for myself to go, but I wasn't going to fly down to LA and spend put a in a hotel and, and pay, <laughs> I think, I think like 1200 for the week. Well, yeah, I guess that's true. The full conference ticket is pretty pricey. Mm-hmm. So, so Dragonheart, uh, that's another sh- really long show. Mm-hmm. So are you, do you go all the way to the end of the show? No, uh, uh, the show, I, I went on to Congo. Oh, okay. Some work done on Congo. So I went on to help him on Congo. At those days, there wasn't enough digital artists to actually do that yeah. for all the big shows. And, and was it like, more modeling stuff that you're doing on Congo? Uh, actually, I was doing modeling and some animation, like animation for uh, just a you know a satellite. And, oh yeah, okay. And so actually, that, that was fun because I actually uh, was able to help design the satellite because I did <laughs> nice. some work. I did some work at at NASA for a couple of weeks back when I was at Alias training. And so I just called one of the artists up. I knew a captain. And I said, do you have any satellites that you'd recommend for this show? And he went, 
and he sent me links. He just sent me a list in the mail of all these satellites and, and to look them up. I said, okay, that works. Oh, that's so cool. How interesting, mm-hmm. like to have an opportunity to, yeah, to be involved in, you know, some design, like, you mm-hmm. know, putting some uh, of those maybe childhood drawing skills mm-hmm. to work too. And then, yeah, being able to call an old buddy, you know, somebody mm-hmm. you used to work with. That's awesome. Right. So, mm-hmm. so you work on Congo and when do you get the, are, are you, do you stay at ILM for much longer after that? Uh, no, I, um, that's when Disney uh, started waving the paycheck. They were starting, they were just starting Dinosaur. Oh, right. Okay. And because they, I, I worked on Dragonheart, they, um, they wanted me to look at their, their to uh, help model their first uh, uh, dinosaur, which was uh, an Acornodon named, uh, at the time, his name was uh, Adam. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't the, the name we finally chose, but no, it was more of a biblical name. <laughs> yeah. Well, wait, so, so you get an opportunity, so you're at ILM, you spend a, a, about what, three-ish years, is that? Two years. Two. Two years. So two years at ILM, you get to work on a number of shows and commercials. You kind of learn a lot of that, the development, early development of that pipeline and, and using a lot of those tools and techniques. And then how does the opportunity at Disney come about? Does somebody call you? Were you headhunted or? I was headhunted and I flew down because what, what they wanted to do is they actually also wanted to have somebody there that could actually explain ILM's uh, nerves technology and uh, how they stitched and socked uh, yeah, yeah. their characters together. The socking and enveloping tools. and Yeah. And so, and plus, since I did part of that at ILM, you know, I, I couldn't explain how to write the code. Yeah. But I could explain how the code should work. Right. <laughs> so that's pretty interesting. So there's an opportunity to, uh, I suppose it's like one of those things where, you know, it's, you could look at that and think like, oh, it's kind of dicey, like sharing, you know, company secrets, but really at the same time, I, I, you know, it's not like, uh, well, ILM was inventing its own tools, the notion of needing to be able to do that kind of work to create seamless, smooth geometry that could deform. Mm -hmm. That's not like a novel idea. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, it's it's pretty specific to one set of tasks yeah. that ILM developed. Because I remember yeah. when Lincoln Who went to Sony, ILM wanted to have a, a cease and desist order of right. doing, that Sony would do any socking and envelope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's funny to think about those early days of like the thought that oh there was a corporate a secret mm-hmm. in something that, you know, nowadays, you know, the idea of uh, organic deformation, you know, is not, there's nothing novel uh, or proprietary about it. There might be proprietary tools that get developed, but the con the conceptually that idea can't, I can't imagine that that's something that could ever be protected. <laughs> no. And, and I know that we had a PhD, and Matt um, working on this on our stitcher. We called it the stitcher. Mm-hmm. This was at Disney. Yeah, Disney. Yes, yeah. Stuart Dixon. It was like 
18 months of development for him to get it working correctly. Wow. Yeah. And, and then, and that, that was all done in, in uh, IRIX. We even had a special IRIX window for doing all the stitching. <laughs> so no, this, this must've been, so now you've had credits on a couple movies, I guess. Right. Mm -hmm. Was that cool? Was that exciting oh, yeah. at all to have like credit on a film? Yeah, especially when my family is something, you know, they like to see Casper and they sound my name. Yeah, that's neat, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you're, so you come down to Burbank, right? Mm -hmm. Or is it in Burbank? That's yeah, Disney. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Burbank. Yeah. So we, the first studio we had was on the, was right by the, on the one, 134, the Hat Building. Yep. Yep. But they had, but we were in our initial studios were in Glendale. Oh, okay. Uh, around where uh, Imagineering is mm -hmm. and where DreamWorks ended up building down the street. Uh, from us. But then we moved up to, uh, then the, the big building they, they had for Dinosaur and a few other films was up by the Marriott at the uh, oh, okay. airport. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So that was where we called that. Um, yeah, so we had we have Feature Animation North, which was the building I was we were in for Dinosaur, mm -hmm. and then Feature Animation South. And then, uh, then there's Florida and Paris. Right. Now, Dinosaur, that was a, I remember that movie came out in 2000. 2000. Is that right? Yeah. I yeah. remember having a, watching that movie with my son when he was, he was born in 2003, but we must have had an old DVD of it or something because mm -hmm. we remember watching that movie. And, but that must have been an interesting move to go from uh, projects like, Casper, Congo, Dragonheart, to go on to something like Dinosaur, because Dinosaur, if I'm not mistaken, right? I see if I, it, wasn't it entirely, almost entirely 3D? It is. It's all, it's, well, there's 2D plays. We did the, the traditional VFX. Oh, okay. We had the 3D characters and some 3D props, but mo most of the sets were, were not 3D. There was only Those were practical 2D sets. Oh, okay. Yeah, so they, yeah, and so the, the opening shot with the dinosaur, the pterodon flying over uh, the, uh, the, the, the landscape, you know, the other dinosaurs, that was mm -hmm. in Venezuela. Oh, really? Oh, okay. The real, and the real opening shot with the female dinosaur was being, you know, killed by the carnotaur. That mm -hmm. was in, that was in the Everglades in Florida. Oh, no kidding. Wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow, that's cool. So, that was that must have been too though. I mean, that was a huge number of characters and assets. Like that was a big show. Yep. And that must have gone on for oh, well years. over a year. Five years? Five years. Oh wow. It was uh, five years. Uh, I left after year three because mm -hmm. I, I went to work on Atlantis. Because I wanted to work on a more traditional 2D doing 3d elements in a 2d film interesting so so how what kind of was it doing things where you're generating doing layout generating camera moves and doing like was it tune shaded or how did we, those we shows... did the tune shading and what and, and we have software called inca which was to do the line shading but uh, most of the stuff we were doing was um was like big vehicles Mm -hmm, which would mm -hmm. be too hard for animators to actually go in. I mean, well, not hard, it would just the length of time 
for some of those vehicles and, and, and other things just to be drawn frame by frame accurately. Yeah. Up. It would just be, it, they just figured we'd do it all in 3D, which we did. And the hardest part was pretty much making sure that the, the inclines worked out. Uh huh. And a lot of times it ended up being where you would actually go in and just go into an early bird, go into Photoshop and just start painting them out. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, in, I mean, you know, there's so much of, I think even in those, you know, still relatively early ish days of that digital transition, there was so much, I know at ILM, there was so much, um, 2d paint work that had to be mm-hmm. done to clean things up at the end, rather than, you know, having things come out perfectly. You'd just be like, Oh, well, we'll just paint it later, you know, and mm-hmm. you could fix a lot of stuff that way. It could take somebody, you know, a couple of days for a really long shot to fix a particular thing, but you know, it's probably cheaper in the end than going back and spending the time and energy to try to fix the technical problem and re-render. Right. Yeah. Cause I remember when Sandy Houston was doing death becomes her. Mm-hmm. And they had the neck that was twisted around. They they tried to get the digital, the the, the CG model to do it more. But I think Sandy finished off all the all the painting frame by frame. I think it was a matter of a couple of days, yep. yeah, three or four weeks. Of the yeah, TV. I mean, yeah, it's funny to think about some of those things that like they sort of seem, you know, kind of like a hack. But in the mm-hmm. end, like as it goes by on screen, you don't notice it. It works perfectly. So yeah. it's what works. It's not, it's what's going to help make money, not cost yeah. money. So, so you go from dinosaur onto Atlantis and you are, you're on that show for a long time too. Yeah. A couple of years. And then, uh, and then uh, I was on, I did a couple of small projects, uh, you know, home under range. And mm-hmm. uh, I did a lot, I did, uh, some interstitials for the re-release of uh, uh, Snow White. Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. And that's so gotta then, be fun to work on something like that's that old too. I always thought like that was the one super fun thing I remember in terms of project wise at ILM was when they re did the re-releases of the star Wars movies, like having an opportunity to touch some of those things and get right. to work on a few shots here and there, you know? Right. And, and, and then do uh then do what ended up being Jab of the Hut because the first Jab of the Hut was cut out because they yeah, just right. like a big Scotsman with a with a fur, yeah. fur, fur jacket. <laughs> so are you do you how long are you at Disney for? Six six and a half years. And then uh, uh they were going through some growing pains. They had bought Dream Quest. Oh sure. Yeah. And then they took this group of uh of um, VFX people and brought them into feature animation, which was, even though we all, we use the same tool sets and the same computers, the methodology between feature animation and VFX is completely the opposite ends. How, how so? Like what, what kinds of differences do you think you saw? Well, VFX is, is basically from what I saw was primarily shot based mm-hmm. because any shot can be changed. Sure. When you're doing a, a VFX, when you're doing a feature animation and you do a character, that character is going to be in 1900 shots if it's a hero character. You can't start changing the character. Right. You know, every time you turn around, the director goes, Oh, I want to change that. No, you can't because that's going to affect every other shot. 
you know, once you start getting real locks and, and running shots, you, you you just don't want to change. Plus, the methodology of um, storytelling at Disney or, or any feature drives a lot of the effects artists crazy. Mm. Because you're working on a character, you work on a thing, and they said, oh, this whole sequence has just got thrown out. <laughs> so six months of your work is, you know, down the drain, and you got to start over again. But yeah. the deadline doesn't stop. Well, like, well, right. Mm-hmm. I've, had that, I've had that happen in effect shows, though, too. I worked on, I worked at Sony on uh, I Am Legend, mm-hmm. and we worked on whole sequences with the the hemocyte characters, the kind of mm-hmm. zombie characters in the Omega Man remake. And, mm-hmm. and uh, there was probably a good, I don't know, four or five sequences that I worked on that got cut out. But I never really bothered me, though. I just figure, like, well, I still got paid. That's that's how you have to look at it. But I, I, yeah, <laughs> when I was up at um, the last big film I worked, I was Deadpool two in Vancouver, and some of the guys or artists were getting really miffed when they saw their work being thrown out. Mm. I said, did you get a paycheck? Did you pay your rent? Did yeah, you to go for a pint. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Are you the director? Is this your right. script that you wrote? Like, right. mm-hmm. you know, eh, whatever. It's it's a service, right? <laughs> right. At the end, you got you have it. You're you know, living in a pretty nice area. Yeah, for sure. You know when you because I, you know, and uh, Dina paid overtime. Unlike of some studios in Vancouver, never paid overtime. Dina yeah. did pay OT. So, I just never worked overtime. If I didn't get paid overtime, I would just tell people no bucks, no buck Rogers, you know, right? mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't work for free. Well, I was a, I was a supervisor one of the CG soups on that show. Uh-huh. Uh, and they said, and when I was hired, they said, you, I said, you, you're not required to work overtime. That was a bit of a lie. Yeah. Because I said, <laughs> we're, 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 because dailies would start at eight in the morning and go to 8 PM. Mm, yeah. And so I wouldn't leave the studio until nine because after 8, 8 p.m. dailies, through dailies, before, because we had our Indian group, I would have to go and start typing notes to them. Yeah, sure. So was this double negative? This was their studio in Vancouver. Vancouver. Yeah. yeah. So let's do a quick rundown. So you were, you were at Disney yeah. and then post Disney, where'd you go? Pixar. Oh, you were at Pixar. What did you work on there? Uh, uh, the Incredibles. I was. Uh, oh, wow! The Brad Bird was going. Brad Bird was uh, pretty hard on all the modeling TVs. Hmm. So they they took me and they put me in the art department to work with him. Which at first it was kind of, uh, you know, like what is this guy's problem? But then once I once he got to like you, you could do no wrong. So and he I, was like kind of a harsh taskmaster maybe at first, but then once you broke through that barrier, there was something else. Yeah. Cause once I, I worked on Edna mode, he couldn't get it. So I finally got her stylistically the way he wanted her. So then he gave me Mr. Incredible. So I worked with Tony Chichili, uh, got him mm-hmm. out the door and then did a few more characters. Then, uh, we're at the beginning of the movie. They had a guy. Uh, his name was Bomb Voyage. Mm-hmm. His first, his real name, his 
first name was going to be Von Perignon. But the Don Perignon uh, people got a little miffed. That they were <laughs> so he came from Wales. And all Brad said to me was, okay, here's a here's a napkin sketch that I did. Just create this. Okay, you don't want to see it? I said, no, I'll see it when it's, when it's ready. And he did. And that was like, oh, then I went on to Ratatouille. Ratatouille, right? Okay. And then after that, my ex-wife didn't want to stay in the States anymore. Mm -hmm. So we moved back to Toronto and I went to work on Spaz's film. Oh, right. On the, the wild. wild. Is that? Yeah. 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 And then, uh, then after I got divorced, you know, at the beginning of the film, finished my job there. Then I went over to Meteor Studios to work on Fantastic Four. Oh, okay. <laughs> and then after Fantastic Four, I headed back south because I just didn't want to, I, I just wanted to, you know, restart my life again. Yeah, right. sure. Right. Because you know, got divorced, gave up a lot. Yeah, I just yeah, I just wanted I, so I just came back to to LA and started working at Disney, at Sony. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. And from Sony, I went to work for and Sony laid people off. Uh, and then I went to work for the Weinstein's. Oh, really? Wow. I was uh, we were we were doing we were in development with Berkeley Brothers for uh, an Opus movie, Christmas movie. Oh, that would have been cool. It would have been cool, but. Um, uh, they closed it down because Surf's Up came out. Oh, uh, right. And and the March of the Penguins came out. And yeah. Last thing he said, I don't want to do it. Well, from what he said, I don't want to do another goddamn um, uh, movie on on penguins. Yeah. Well, yeah. And then Happy Feet, right? There was like yeah. it was like Penguin City for a while there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so that's when I, after I finished that, I went to work. Um, and face wear. So I, I was building face, helping them develop it. They, they, they did all the face work for uh, Benjamin Buttons, even though yeah. he said they did company image metrics, which is that face where I did all the work. How interesting. So are, did you start then doing at that point, are you doing like some programming or what, how to? No, just hiring people to do it and, and just coming up with methodologies. And oh, okay. that's, when I first got that's where I first got introduced to the facts. The facial action control system. Oh, okay. Right. So you're, you, and it was developed by behavioral scientists. Mm -hmm. Facts. And so I started getting that. And so instead of doing, you know, phonemes, just started creating muscle pulls. Because the muscle, and that's that's why I, I like facts, because it's just all based on what what muscles create the shape, and what are all the muscles that are affected by that shape. That's cool. Yeah. Oh, so interesting. Yeah. And I, then I have to do just, then I went to DNAG, double negative in London. Yeah. For a year, worked on John Carter. Oh, okay. And because I'd been doing some work with facial, I was, a, they asked me to head up their facial group for the show. That and uh, another film called Paul. Oh, yeah. With the alien. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is funny as hell. Yeah. And also... <laughs> Yeah, so then I came back and uh, I worked at a small studio called Hammerhead. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So it's all X PDI. Yep. VFX people. And uh, 
then that then I because you know, they were like one of those shoestring studios. So as soon as you're finished the show, you're gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, yeah, yeah. Which was fine. And then I got hired at a. I had a really cush job working for a theme park company. Oh, really? Just doing theme park rides. Cool. <laughs> Seriously, four years I was there. We did two big shows. <laughs> In four years, yeah, that sounds pretty good. Yeah, and, and and but what it is is like while you're developing your media, they're developing the ride. So the only hard part is when you got to change the motion of the, the cameras work and the people and whatever is being animated to match the mo- the gimbal on the yeah sure because we we're just doing gim- we're just doing you know not not doing dark rights we were just doing the gimbal chair so, so. yeah yeah. Oh, cool! But that was that was. Was that the last big job? Uh, no. When I finished there, that's they 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 went bankrupt, (laughs) and the and the principals went back. They were all from Jordan, so the principals all moved back to Jordan. (laughs) (laughs) Having and some of us upwards of forty thousand. Oh no! Really? Yeah, that's awful. Mm-hmm. So that's when I went back. I get a bean egg up in Vancouver. Yeah. So I went there. And then when I came back, I came back because I needed to get some uh, eye surgery. I used to wear uh-huh. glasses. And so I, I had I developed an eye disease over the years. So I need to have my lenses changed. Yeah. Uh, because there was, there was a, a form of uh, glaucoma that. Mm-hmm started to really cause early onset cataracts yeah so they changed my lens and so i was pretty well out for almost a year from working because it wasn't that my eyesight wasn't good my brain couldn't adapt to it yeah sure i couldn't sit in front of a monitor for more than 20 minutes without getting a headache yeah because everything yeah. was so bright sure i even went out and bought some uh, neutral density filters Mm-hmm. And, and had them cut, had them laser cut to be put in glasses. It didn't help. Didn't help. Yeah. Well, that's hard. I mean, it's hard like anything like that. Like I remember in those early days when people were really moving to working, you know, from an analog kind of way into a totally digital way and spending so many hours on the computer, the number of people who wound up having some kind of like, you know, neck problem or carpal tunnel or whatever it was, like the sort of, the physicality uh or the 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 sort of sort of um what's the word like uh you know sedentary kind of physicality of sitting in front of a computer for that long and looking at a monitor focusing at something that's really physically close to you not being able to get up go outside and focus at a distance like all the right. things that you try to do to kind of compensate for this mm-hmm. kind of somewhat unnatural way of right. working Right. Presents all kinds of problems. And those big CRTs that were on silicon graphics. Yeah. So much radiation coming off of them. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then with the I remember I think it was at ILM, they asked me to do help out to match moving. I did two shots. I don't want to do this anymore. Especially yeah. when you you look at Charlie Clavid Ashley and he was just starting the yeah. I mean, he ended up I don't even know if he can work anymore. Yeah, he had a hard time for a while, for sure. 
I know because I went to Sony, he was there. And his, and his hands were in. So he was just basically more supervised than he was actually sitting down at the computer. Yeah. So you mentioned when we first started talking that year, you've been teaching? Yeah. I started teaching in uh, two months before the pandemic. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> my first four classes or five classes was all in person. So the wait, so, of, now, where, so where are you teaching now? Or where New York Film Academy. It's right next so, to Warner Brothers in, in LA and in Burbank. Okay. And what kinds of things like were you brought in to teach? Well, I've taught digital sculpting. Mm -hmm. digital modeling, texture painting, and character design and development. Oh, cool. Wow. Mm -hmm. That sounds fun. It is. <laughs> Except I have this, this uh, most recent group. I have, there's one, two young women in the class and from, uh, from the Middle East. They're talented, but they don't, this one, one woman says, I don't want to work. I want to be a director. <laughs> oh, you're telling me directors don't work you've never experienced a director have you yeah <laughs> they're probably the hardest working person on most films yeah sure because they're responsible for everything especially when they got a you know if they have a if it's a big blockbuster with a 200 million dollar budget yeah so did you go when you started teaching you said two months in the pandemic hit did you wind up teaching classes online then yeah zoom yeah like we're doing now yeah how what did you think of um just out of curiosity i had to do the same thing I, what did you think of teaching digital stuff on zoom i, I i'm curious i i found it good and bad yeah bad because yeah. depending on a student's uh, uh home's wi-fi or setup if I wanted to go and share a screen or they had to share their screen so I could do some drawovers, if they had a terrible Wi-Fi connection. Yeah. Like, okay. I can't, I, in 10 minutes, I can't even draw one line. Yeah. There's definitely some like, you know, uh, inequity in terms of like people's, you know, what, pe what resources people had access to at home. Yeah. But the thing that I did like about Zoom is through getting the recording, bringing the recording in, maybe doing some simple editing, throwing stuff out, and then send the link to all the students so they could go after the class. And that's right. I wish I had that now where I could actually have when I'm teaching a class. Because if I'm teaching a class on, on especially digital modeling, you know, for the character design, and, and you know, people say, well, well, how do I build a face? <laughs> <laughs> It's like, well, you just got to do it. Yeah, yeah. You just got to take that, right? Just start, because like, so, I start, I always start my character design class with anatomy. Mm -hmm. So I start with the, I look at the skeleton, the muscles, and the and the skin. And I said, yeah, these, you have to understand all these before you can actually start designing characters. Even if it's a cartoony character, you still have to understand, you know, anatomy. Yeah, we do that kind of uh, at our school. We kind of have that, uh, you know, more traditional model where all of our students are required to take, at a minimum, two full semesters of life drawing. 
mm-hmm. with live models and drawing, you know, normal drawing, <laughs> like, you know, and I, I feel like the students that I see who can draw the figure from observation, they, the transition from that to working, whether it's in ZBrush or doing some kind of digital sculpting, they're without question, such better modelers than the students who don't have that facility with drawing at the beginning. Yeah. And especially when we're using ZBrush, because ZBrush, it doesn't have a steep learning curve. Mm -hmm. It's got a very steep, I don't want to hate this curve. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It has its own bizarre nomenclature as a tool, you know, that like literally everything is a tool. (laughs) Right. Right. Just like, yeah, and, and active points. Yeah, know, how many yeah. active points? And just to, <laughs> you know, and just telling students they want to they, they want to start texture painting. And say, how come my texturing is so long? You will make up two thousand polygons. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you need to have if you want to do a four K map, you're pretty well going to have to have four million polygons to paint on. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so are you are you still teaching now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I teach, uh, well, the semester's ending in uh, in the early December, which is good. Now they don't start teaching back until Jan- January, so I got a pretty well full month off. Yeah, same so just, same here. I got, you know, it's just two classes, but this is a, this, this is an all year round semester, so school. So they, they have, so they don't, there's no break. If I want to have a summer off, I have to take the summer off and not take yeah, are you um, thinking of uh, going back to work on any shows too in the midterm? Sometimes, sometimes, uh, but I don't know if after working on Deadpool too, I'm just seeing how VFX is being run these days. Yeah, yeah. It's. Uh, I think I'd rather just maybe work on an animated project or another theme park. Yeah. As, as we maybe stay out of the stay out of the grind a little bit. There's a, we were getting six to eight cuts of Deadpool a day and just throwing assets out, bringing new assets in. Close to the end of the show, and we had three weeks to deliver. Well, uh, wasn't that a first-time director, former VFX supervisor? Stuntman. Oh, stunt stunt man. Su- he was a stunt supervisor. But he... Uh, so, so he... He, he kept the original uh, story by uh, Tim Miller wrote, but just added a ton more visual effects in it. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, so by the end of the show, I was I just went to the producer and said, "We can't, we don't have enough time to to build all these assets that they want for the sequence. I'm just going to go and buy them on Turbo Squid because they're royalty free." So I just gave my credit card, spent a couple thousand, got the money back on. Uh, turbo squid and we just fix them up to meet the show's needs no that's awesome though yeah it's a there sometimes necessity uh yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the mother of invention as they yeah. say that's great yeah. and the producers just because you know we even though we had tons of artists in in india just the, the lag time it's a yeah. turnaround every time you make a note yeah well with the time difference too yeah, right yeah yeah it's, it's yeah. not the quality of work that they could do it's the time difference that when they can get it back to us yeah yeah well so and everything else these days are things going well your eyes are good you're in the zone oh yeah 
just, you know, doing some my own art, getting I bought a couple scanners, so I, I'm taking all my film that I that I shot back in in the in the film days and just scanning them all in. That's cool. Do you do any photography to this day? Do you you yeah. said you bought a digital camera not that long ago, yeah? Yeah, well, I have a I have now three digital cameras, two film cameras. I wish I didn't sell my Hasselblad. Yeah. That was a dumb move. <laughs> my wife keep my wife keeps like, why'd you sell that Hasselblad? Eh, um, maybe there's another one in your future somewhere. <laughs> well, film is back in vogue, so Yeah. Hasselblads have now gotten back up to what they were in the nineties for price. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I use Hasselblad would go from the thirty five to three eight hundred. Then now it's back up. Back in yeah. two years ago, three years ago, we could pick one up for nine hundred bucks. Well, maybe you'll find one at an estate sale or something. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I think I have to get going here. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, Bruce, thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk with me. It's really fun to get a chance to catch up with you and, and hear about your background. Yeah. And when you, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find your uh, podcast and I'm going to send them to all my students. Oh, great. Yeah, there's 68 episodes. They would be interested in hearing, you know, what seasoned veterans went through. Well, great. Well, Bruce, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, good luck. And maybe I'll see you around one of these days. Yep. And and say hi to Ty. Will do. Yeah. Oh, by the way, just the, the Mark DePay is my neighbor. Oh, no kidding. Uh, Alan Poon lives in town. Yep. I yeah, talked I to Ellen. She's, I interviewed Ellen. Yeah. It'd be fun to talk to Mark. Let him know if, if he's interested, give yeah, him my um, info. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and I just bumped into West Takahashi last night. He's in town staying at Mark's. Oh, awesome. No way. Great. Well, if yeah. you see him, tell him I said hello. Okay. I'll do that. Thanks. All right. Me. Take care, okay. Bruce. Thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome. It was fun. All right. Bye. All right.